happy memorial day everyone for the first time in a long time no games to talk about but that's given us a chance to get into some more draft film today we're going to talk about john morant out of murray state and while i cannot guarantee that john morant is going to be a great nba player i can guarantee that he is going to put up some awesome highlights in the nba one of the most exciting players that i've ever evaluated like this he was really fun and morant i I'd, i'll be interested to see if you feel the same same way but I had trouble putting together a a full comp for him because I think he has different elements of various modern point guards and also certain limitations that other modern point guards go through but I like that you brought up that he's exciting I mean not only does he have great court vision and and his passing toolbox for a player who is 19 and will turn 20 relatively soon is really full but he just tries stuff you know moments and it's not quite the same thing as Trey Young like I think Trey Young was a little bit more ambitious not only with his shots but sometimes with his passes but Morant combines that sort of a mentality with stronger athleticism and so I think that opens up avenues for Morant that are really fun and really intriguing well not only that and I think what you said about him trying stuff is an excellent point and maybe it's better that he's coming out of a small school setting where he was the engine and put up these crazy stats that we'll get to and basically had full autonomy to do whatever he wanted I think that was probably good for his development although there's some stuff in there that he's going to need to clean up for sure as he gets into higher levels of competition but i think his ball handling is ridiculous like he does some moves i tweeted one out today that you just don't see and it's so quick he's got these behind the backs as he's backing up he'll go behind the back and get into a jumper which you know he might not make at, at this point in time fantastic crossover and then hesitation the amount of ground that he covers with the crossover where he brings the ball way out to his to his right and then sweeps it way over the left it's almost like an iverson kobe type of crossover from the late 90s early 2000s well he also so he has that crossover but he also has a more full speed right to left shorter crossover that is more like russell westbrook that i thought was fun i thought it was cool that he has both of those already in his arsenal and the full speed one is just a pain in the ass to stop yeah and he is Mike Schmitz uh, noted what you were talking about. He, he has a, a good video on uh, you should definitely look at. But I mean, some of, he's got to tighten up a little bit. But the creative, I mean, he can go behind his back, like in traffic in the lane. Like, and against like some of the high major teams that they're playing too. This wasn't just a, in the Ohio Valley Conference that, that he was doing this stuff. So just the level of excitement, the vision that he has, capable of some absolutely spectacular finishes, both dunks and double pump layups. Really just uh, visually what, one of the most fun guys that we've seen let's start though just talking a little bit about some of the relevant stats for him stand 6'3 175 i couldn't find an official wingspan for him he wasn't in the usa basketball program where he's getting measured did not go to the combine there's some reports out there that he has a 6'7 wingspan that looks about right to me uh in terms of what he's uh, able to do just finished his sophomore year but very young for a sophomore birthday is not until august 10th when he'll turn 20 so he's kind of halfway between a, a freshman your typical freshman your typical sophomore uh and then the overall efficiency is really good especially considering the playmaking ro- role that he had well yeah i mean so 31 6 per 61 percent true shooting on 33 percent usage and then the one that is truly jaw-dropping this is using basketball references version of the stat 52 percent assist rate is completely insane he led the ncaa in assist and turnovers this year a great stat that was in schmitz's video and that gets into the idea that 
you were talking about the the volume that he had, and also he played a ton of minutes this year. I mean, especially in the yeah. high leverage games, he was basically playing thirty eight to forty every single time. Yeah, and that's not that uncommon in, True. in college uh, where you've got more timeouts. Uh, you don't change ends as often. The intensity, frankly, despite what people would say, oh, they care so much more. It's actually not true. I, I find the intensity is much lower, especially for star players uh, on defense in particular. But here's another stat that was crazy: got double digits assists. That's the most assists per game of any player that was drafted in the SportsReference.com database from 1992-93 to present. And almost none of these are like Rondo assists, where he's just standing up top and guys run off the screens or he dumps it into the post or something like. He is either using his own gravity, diming guys up with skip passes, pushing the ball in transition, or getting to the basket, drawing two defenders, and using that to find guys. And and he's he's playing at Murray State. I watch mostly in terms of the full games, the games that he had against high major teams. He played against Alabama, Auburn, Marquette, and then Florida State. Florida State, they got blown out by them in the second round, but they were very competitive in the other three games. They won that one against Marquette pretty handily when he had 16 assists in a triple-double in the first round of the tournament. I think we, I'd like to talk some about his finishing. He is a ridiculous head-at-the-rim type of leaper. Can cock back some big dunks off of one or two feet. He got a lot of dunks when he would cut hard back door from teams denying him. They ran kind of pinch post triangle type of stuff where a big would catch it at the elbow when he was being denied and then he would cut hard back door, get some big dunks, get some big dunks in transition. Great left hand. He likes to go left more than right and as a left-handed passer, left-handed finisher, he still, because he's so skinny, can get bumped around at the rim and when he doesn't get the foul call, he did get a lot of foul calls. Uh, 8.2 free throw attempts per game, which was also fifth in the nation and, and beyond shot 81% the, and from that's the line. exactly yeah. what i was going to say shot 81 percent on those i thought that was important and morant's film was was for me a little bit of a reminder of the difference between college point guards and pro point guards you know really getting into it first of all the I, it was fun to watch a a smaller school guy again it's been a little while like i watched mitchell robinson's louisiana high school film last year so obviously this is dramatically above that but there were some moments where you're sitting there going like oh man there's such a huge jump that's coming and I thought that some of his most elusive finishes were more about avoiding contact than, you know, trying to really like kind of work your way into position. You know, like there's a distinction there, you know, some of like, let's say Damian Lillard, another small school guy, as he's gotten stronger, a lot of his best finishes are through contact, not around contact. But Morant's 19 turning 20, very thin still. I think a lot of that stuff will tone out with time as long as he works on his body and gets there. But he's 19. It always takes that time to fill out your body and adjust. Yeah, particularly against Florida State that had a ton of length. You saw a lot of his finishes where he's either floating it up over the defense, he's going into some crazy double pumps, which he can make on occasion. And he certainly got fouled plenty. I think his thin frame actually, kind of Lou Williams-like, De'Aaron Fox-like, can help him get to the foul line early in his career because when he does get bumped, it's going to be obvious. And I think also one thing that he's really going to be able to take advantage of in the pros is if he starts to have an understanding of, all right, as I'm driving to the basket, I've beat my man he puts a hand on me how to accentuate contact draw those fouls out on the floor as he's going to the room kind of throw it up draw the bs shooting foul i think he especially given how smart he is and how well he sees the game that that's something that can really become a huge weapon for him i do see him getting to the foul line quite a bit within his first few seasons in the nba he's just got to kind of embrace the bullshit foul drawing the way that trey young does in particular uh try to be physical but then if he gets knocked off of it it'll be obvious 
obvious and then he'll go to the foul line i don't think he has the biggest hands he would try a lot of these speed layups where you just you just extend the ball out with one hand bring it up without touching it with the other hand so you don't get stripped and a lot of times it seemed like he would kind of lose control on those plays when he would go back for those big dunks he'd really have to almost cup it in his wrist he wasn't able to palm the ball it looked like particularly well and he definitely would attempt some very ambitious finishes sometimes that didn't have much of a chance but overall i thought when he did draw the defense that he made the right play and that we can get into some of his passing well, i want to before, oh, yeah, before we get into passing the first note i had from the first game and i'm going to be interested in your response to this it's not uniform but for a player of his athleticism on a possession by possession basis the note that i used was that he's a little glidey and what i mean by that is differentiate morant with De'Aaron fox De'Aaron fox is what he's pushing in transition he's he's in fifth gear all the time or damn near all the time including fox a lot on defense that was something that stood out to me going back to the hoop summit with De'Aaron fox morant has that fifth gear but whether it was playing time or just that he likes operating it seemed to me more that he was operating in third and i don't have a huge problem with that but it did strike me that he had you know like his best moments were absolutely in that fifth gear had it some of the crazy dunks some of the finishes his transition play but i was wondering if you saw the same thing with him yeah at times and we can talk a lot more about about this later just in terms of the mentality playing hard all the time you know some of the things that he really has to work on yeah he is more more of a smooth athlete but i think that the ability to change speeds is definitely there I, I don't see him quite as much as oh my god this guy's right on top of me right now uh you know when he does get out in transition he was really really good i think also by the end of the season he was pretty tired uh definitely in that florida state game you know i think he was pretty out of gas by that point but yeah i i agree with you i mean he's not he doesn't necessarily have the most forceful moves at this point in time uh but he's also just so creative that and he frankly would be able to get by guys with his first or his second move most of the time uh let's talk about that passing the hit aheads in transition really good the outlet type of passes where he'll, he'll get the the outlet and then he can throw it ahead to guys streaking down floor just fantastic stuff pick and roll he's not like this amazing operator off the dribble in the sense of like oh i'm gonna get you on my back and put you in jail and you know set up the screen incredibly well you know so from a technical pick and roll standpoint he has a ways to go there but in terms of making all the passes he's fantastic he's got a great eye for lobs even a little bit too ambitious with those on occasion he can throw passes off the dribble right hand left hand lasers across the court either direction great job of reading that backside man in the pick and roll loves to hit the corner shooters and then when he's on the drive either out of iso where he's extremely difficult to keep in front or out of pick and roll he just has fantastic timing on these quick passes either you know the very moment that the guy starts coming over to help he'll throw the pass to the guy that he just left as the guy's momentum is still going towards him and gets guys a, a ton of dunks that way a lot of plays too where he'll get in the air force the defense to commit and then throw a pass out to a shooter or a nice lay down to the big for a finish and i think a big part of why he's such a good passer is because his handle is so good the ball is always bouncing back to his hand quickly so when he sees something there isn't a delay between when he can actually get that guy the and I do find that that he did a pretty good job of staying under control most of the time so and I think in terms of just the polish that he shows the passer I mean there's a reason the guy averaged 10 assists he's probably the most creative passer at the point guard position that I recall seeing even more so than Trey Young who I was incredibly wild by last year I would say Morant in part because he's got more gravity driving to the rim and also because he's got more size yeah the, si- the size is a big 
big difference. Uh, I think Morant is actually even better than Trey Young. In, in terms of creativity, I might not go there, but in terms of the tools in his toolbox, I, I think that's really there. The the operative words for me with Morant as a passer were his mentality and his timing. So Morant, very different from a lot of the other athletic point guards of this era. Even when he creates separation, he's still looking for passes. That doesn't mean he's doing the Rondo thing of like, I'm not going to shoot. It's not It's not at that level, especially because, you know, he, he can be driving for a variety of purposes, but he's he's kind of keeping an eye on all of those different things. And then, and that mentality is really important because it keeps guys engaged and he's finding weak side players and everything else. And when their teams are shading to him, he's making them pay. And then... I'm really interested in in his timing. That was a note that I had in there. You brought it up, and and knowing not only when a help defender's coming, but hitting guys right at the correct moment in terms of when they're cutting. And he's actually he doesn't didn't do it a lot because he had the ball in his hands so much at Murray State. I thought he was a fairly intuitive cutter as well in the limited sample size that we got, and that's yeah. not a surprise. A, he, a lot of that I think was actually dictated by their offense. I, I agree. Their coach actually had some pretty creative sets. He did for guys, uh, and so yeah, that that was one I think they had a trigger for him to go back door a ton and uh, especially when teams are trying to pressure him out on the floor uh let's talk about his jumper now uh, he shoots it pretty low more of a set shot he can shoot a jump shot when he needs to but it's not very consistent so if he tries to rise up in the mid-range he'll have a, a lot of bad misses there uh, he is comfortable pulling up off the dribble and from pretty deep he, that set shot his mechanics enable him to get under the ball i would say more than half of his threes that i saw were like nba range or beyond where teams were going under on him he, he actually didn't get many spot up opportunities but when he did i thought it actually looked fine uh you mentioned the 81 percent free throw shooting he is a much improved shooter from last year last year 31 percent on 2.8 per game and he played nearly as many minutes last year uh and this year 37 percent from three on 4.8 per game and, and again these are pretty difficult attempts off the dribble that's probably three quarters of his attempts and a lot of them are, are real deep where teams are going under on him because they're terrified of his penetration and, and he started off that Florida State game. I think he hit his first five three-pointers in that one, co- cooled off a little bit uh, after that. But it, he is, uh, I would expect him to be capable enough to where, all right, if you go under on him, he will shoot a three and shoot it fine. I don't see him being some amazing 40% three-point shooter or anything like that. Uh, the versatility of his jump shot is not necessarily there. I think to really be a huge threat, the mid-range game, he's going to have to do a little bit of surgery, develop more of a jump shot or a higher release or a quick release. A lot of times in iso he would create the separation but still have his shot bothered because he just his release point was so low uh got a few of those blocked but overall especially with the good free throw shooting i I think i don't see the shooting being a massive liability Uh, teams may still go under on him and say hey we're we want you to shoot this um i'm a little bit i'm more concerned a little bit about the mid-range type of game there's a concern that you might say all right we're gonna play the the pick and roll two on two on you and we're gonna just have our big weight under the rim and you're gonna have to go into him and try and do this athletic finish uh you know i think that would be kind of you know the sort of james harden style of defense will wait for you at the rim uh the defense that's on james harden obviously (laughs) not his own so yeah well and uh, and the guy that i thought of for this when i was watching morant was donovan mitchell that i've thought that shot would really key donovan mitchell's development as an on-ball player he's still mitchell's yeah mitchell mitchell though has just much better mechanics agreed quicker release he can rise up same thing well and he has a higher release too i think Morant's Morant's low release point is freaking me out I think maybe a little bit more than you just because I for me it's the idea of jumping from the Ohio Valley to 
to there. I watched. I watched almost all of his. I watched almost all of his catch and shoots and a lot of his pull ups. And it concerned me how often those pull ups were being contested and how you know sometimes guys got a hand on it and a little bit closer like that. That said, I do think that it's completely workable for him to improve it. Especially he's a good free throw shooter. Seems like he like with the growth that he's shown in his game. I'm not super familiar with him. I know that he was an AAU teammate of Zion's back in like sophomore year or something like that at high school. But he, I, I think that he can get, do some, it, I don't think it's severe surgery, but do a little bit of work there if need be, especially because a lot of the other parts of his game are very well in hand for a guy his age. So I'm not super freaked out, but I am a little bit freaked out by that because yeah. of what the ripple effects that come out from a primary ball handler's game, if you don't have to fr- freak out about that shot. You know, like we've, we've seen good players, not, you know, like their career gets derailed or something like that, but not reach their potential because that gives defenders an out yeah that that's the negative uh, i am i do have some concern but again i think it, it, you know we're talking about at the highest levels here if he can make a three when you go under on him and then he's able to get into the lane and then he's got this great passing ability as well you know it's going to take a real good rim protecting center to cause problems for him and say hey we're going to really make you pull up in the mid-range w- once you've gotten into the lane um and because his handle is so good and his hops are so good if he can develop any kind of reliable mid-range he'll be able to get to that in an iso anytime when the shot clock is breaking down he's just got that good a shake off the dribble all right, we got a little bit more to get to on Ja here. But first, uh, this from Helix Sleep, who knows that there's no one on the planet like you. So why are you going to buy a one-size-fits-all mattress? My wife and I learned that lesson the hard way about three and a half years ago. We bought one of those one-size-fits-all mattresses, and we ended up returning it because we both developed back pain. And so then she did some research. She found Helix Sleep, filled out their two-minute sleep quiz, and they designed us a custom mattress. Fortunately, because she and I are just so compatible, she's actually laughing in the background <laughs> of hearing me say that, uh, we were able to have the same formula for both of us. But if you and your significant other are not as compatible, at least in your sleep patterns, that's all I'm talking about here, they can customize each side for you and your partner. And they've now taken customized sleep to the next level with the Helix Pillow. They are fully adjustable so you can achieve perfect comfort regardless of sleep position or body type. I'm a back sleeper, so I go for a thinner pillow so I don't hurt my neck. If you want to, you're a side sleeper, you might want a thicker pillow. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can get a hundred nights to try Helix Sleep out yourself. Go to helixsleep.com slash capspace and get up to $125 towards your mattress order. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace for up to $125 towards your mattress order. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. I'm always touched when my wife actually listens to me record, but now it's the part that she'll be far less interested in than the, the actual read. Uh, well, well, here's the question. Will, yeah. she, will she be more interested in that than John Morant is in engaging in defense about half the time? <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh yeah not a surprise given the usage rate the level of competition but i there's just no two ways about it. he's atrocious defensively at least in terms of the effort level just standing straight up all the time easily screened no help rotations not engaged on or off the ball particularly now mike schmidt said at the cp3 camp last year he was much more engaged when he was going against guys who are higher ranked than him when he really had a point to prove so maybe that is in him and certainly given it his quick feet and physical abilities 
I'm not going to rule it out, but it's going to take some real improvement in his habits. I think he's someone who could make have an effect as an off ball guy if he ever actually tried to rotate. He's just he's just not engaged, and you don't see other than those occasional hard cuts that we talked about, hard pushes and transition sometimes when he has the ball. You just don't see the kind of effort plays that you would hope to see, especially for someone who is so athletic, one of the most athletic guys in his conference. He could be doing more, and we're just not really seeing it. And you know he'll get the occasional steal because he'll jump the passing lane and has some anticipation and he averaged 0.8 blocks per game which is not terrible but in the games that I saw especially against the better competition he was mostly just standing in one place and walking after his man the vast majority of the time I I kind of write my notes for players in various levels of intensity and I only have two sentences in all caps in John Morant's whole write-up both of them are defensive related one of them is just in all caps why does he concede so much penetration because there are times where he's on his man and then all of a sudden his man has passed him and you're just sitting there going like come on now and then the other one and this is something that i've talked about with james harden in the recent past and then in the more distant past is that morant goes for a ton of steal attempts in transition and sometimes those work out just like they do with james harden he doesn't have yeah, quite the same it's also a convenient excuse to not get back, exactly major and and it's it's like it steal attempts in transition are the hallmark of a player who is not in position and that's all they can do is try to get a steal and i think morant has the tools i agree with you the thing that schmidt said about cp3's camp was very interesting when he had a different kind of workload presumably and also i i think when i what i noticed about him watching a lot of his defensive film and getting not as angry as i was with let's say like markel fultz markel fultz drove me insane with his defensive film and this wasn't quite at that level was that i think he has the intelligence and the tools to be at bare minimum capable especially if he gets stronger which i expect to see in the future so i i'm i got frustrated because i thought he could be better than he was but i wasn't as concerned about him never being good defensively like i think he has the he has the building blocks whether he actually uses them or not is an open question like to me this isn't as extreme as let's say ben simmons so like with ben simmons you could see all of it really in play and it's just will he give a shit i i think it's a little bit different with morant because the tools aren't i mean ben simmons is 610 it's a little bit of a different ball game with him but morant absolutely could be a good defender if he engages with it if the coaching staff works with him and his game works in that direction so i'm concerned but i'm not freaked out yeah i think that goes with a a lot of these uh, intangible things now not intangible in the sense of oh he's not a good kid or something like that he's he's got a great story everyone seems to really like him i thought it was also very interesting that his rebounding rate declined significantly from his freshman year when he actually had six percent offensive rebounds and 16 percent defensive rebounds that went down quite a bit by about three percent in both cases so maybe that was a case of him just having the ball so much more and being tired maybe it was a case of him feeling like he didn't need to do that anymore i can't say i'm that aware of how murray state's personnel changed from last year to this year maybe it's something to do with that but just overall again I, there are good points and bad points to this because i think a lot of his creativity developed from the environment that he's been in but the lack of high level experience playing hard defensive fundamentals also just knowing what he can get away with with against higher level opponents you know that it's going to be a culture shock for him there as it was to some degree against florida state which has a lot of long athletes seems like they always 
Cowboys have that every year and so I think he's going to make spectacular plays I also expect him to if he plays 33 minutes a game next year to lead the NBA in turnovers just like he led the nation in turnovers this year and again I think a lot of this stuff can be coached out of him if he's on a bad team where he's the offensive centerpiece which is probably going to be the case in Memphis next year is it going to be possible to coach it out of him you know is it going to be sort of a Phoenix Suns Devin Booker type of situation where they're just you don't have the ability to take him out of the game and you're not good enough that you're actually playing high leverage games to to where it's really going to come back and bite him so he certainly could have all this stuff coached out of him but you'd much rather that he had a little bit more innate competitiveness in the floor game than he does yeah I think that's a good way of putting it and something that I I wanted to to mention and I I wondered how, how you felt about this it kind of on the mentality approach I thought there were times where he kind of went through like a move like you know kind of he was good with his passing progressions but sometimes like he would try a move or two and it didn't work out as well as he hoped and then he just kind of threw something up whether it was a pass like a lob that didn't have a great chance of success or maybe it was a shot and yeah yeah th- there'd be times when he was probably thinking like all right i'm kind of stuck this has a 20 percent chance of working fuck it i'm just gonna try it anyway. exactly and in the nba so many things don't work on the first couple tries like i mean you could you could think on ball off ball the jj reddick could be a great example here you know the amount of work that he goes through to get possibly one second where he's open for a shot and it's very different when you're the alpha and the omega playing almost all 40 minutes with a with a team in the ohio valley conference but that gives me a little bit of pause as well because and maybe that's just some again something that needs to be coached out of him and it's true of of other point guards as well but that you know that that mentality like the guy i every once in a while i was thinking about you know when i was comparing him with different guys and one of my favorite point guards of the last 10 years as a prospect was mike conley and i thought mike conley had a little bit more bulldog in him you know very different physical tools and all that but the the idea of like the first couple things not working that actually kind of reminded me a little bit more of d'angelo russell um i like john Morant more than d'angelo russell as a prospect and d'angelo russell went second i had i believe i had him second on my board that year though i hadn't done as much film as i think i'll do this year but i i you know it's those sorts of things i I'm feel more confident for whatever reason maybe it's his creativity and basketball IQ that you see in all the other elements with Morant but you know the idea of like can be will be is there's a lot for him that isn't will be that is can be but you hope that it'll get there in time it seems like you're lower on him than I am uh, and yeah I would say probably a little bit but he's still he's still I, I would be shocked if he's not number two on my board I think he has as much upside of any point guard that we've seen going into the draft. When you consider the physical tools, the passing vision, like I said, he's throwing just unbelievable passes at the college level and just the type of stuff that you don't see. And you never know how someone's going to evolve in the NBA. But in, in a lot of ways, the reads and the spacing in the NBA are a little bit easier than they are in college with guys spaced out to the three-point line, more guys who, who can shoot the ball. A lot of times, Murray State had two bigs who were kind of just stationed at, at each block. But when you put together his speed the handle the passing athleticism at the basket i mean he's i wouldn't put him quite up there with john wall or russell westbrook or derrick rose but he's pretty darn close to that level uh in terms of just his explosion he just doesn't have quite the same power as those guys do just not the same frame and that frame is going to be an issue for him defensively too he's going to be a one position maybe a two position defender most likely i don't see him getting enough weight to switch even though he's got decent size for the point guard position so yeah i think he's got just a, a ton of upside there's more risk because he's from a small school because may, maybe he doesn't play that hard you know you don't <coughs> 
see him affecting the game in ways that some of these other point guards do you remember the way a young John Wall defended I don't know how, how good he was in college as a defensive player but he you know he's the best shot blocking point guard of all time I think we're pretty clear that that's not going to be Morant's destiny here but I love him I think he's really good he, he could very easily be the next great point guard and everything that I saw in film you know in, in a lot of years I would be totally fine with him being the number one pick and number two here I, I think Memphis is going to be getting a great pair and I I would be i mean point guard there's a lot of competition so i'm not gonna say i'd be surprised if he's not an all-star but he certainly has a all-star potential and there's especially because i really like upside in the drafts he's got a ton of he does and i really like one of my dominant takeaways from morant is that i think a lot of his current weaknesses are not permanent that was something that freaked me out about trey young like with trey young some of the things that he didn't do well were just part of the package and with john Morant, I don't really see that as much. You know, like it's not a guarantee in any way, shape, or form. And like going back to one of the things that I learned from kind of overrating Dante Exum was the idea of like, you know, what happens if the best thing, if the the best things don't work and then the other parts don't develop. I think John Morant's floor is is intriguingly high. Not the like the 0% floor, but like the 25% floor because what he does well as a passer and as a, you know, as a penetrator, worse comes to worse. Those things things can be valuable for an NBA team. And even if the other parts don't come around, and I think they will, I think he can be a hallmark. And I've talked about 48 good minutes of point guard. I think that even in the the lowercase scenarios, he's still providing meaningful value towards that 48 minutes. I really do like that about him. And also where his game could go with coaching, if he, if he works on it, you know, over the next five to five to seven years and adds new tools to the toolbox, the pull-up jumper, I think is going to be important. Adding strength, finishing around the rim, I think could be a huge development. Like that part of the small school Damian Lillard model would be huge for him. They're not the same type of athlete. I think they're a little bit different, but it could be instructive in terms of the way you could go. You could even look at Steph Curry, let's say, who's gotten a lot better as a finisher over his career. Still not the the strongest guy in the world, though he's a lot stronger now than he was when he came into the league. And so Morant, that, that part of the story makes me feel a lot better about him compared to somebody like Dante Exum or compared to D'Angelo Russell, where Russell, I liked his passing but also he was in a weaker class. And also, I think that's a reminder. I was going through, as you were talking about, you know, the best point guard prospects since blank, just how few really great point guard prospects we, we've had. I mean, you have the, the number one pick, so Fultz, Wall, Rose. But then outside of that, you don't really have that many top five guys. Some of that is because... Irving. Yeah, and go and Kyrie. Yeah. And Ky- I loved Kyrie as a prospect. And so you really do have those guys. But then, and I, I was really high up digging deep into the vault. I was really high on Ricky rubio back in the day and and cp is still my favorite point guard prospect of of the time i've been a draft guy and morant isn't he isn't like quite necessarily in that rare fighter but he's in that next that next group and he might be my favorite of those type of guys just because of he's i think his game fits where the league is going and it does seem with the growth that he's exhibited at murray state and like the kind of the stuff you hear about him that it could work out really well and i i'd be thrilled as memphis getting the two pick this year feels pretty damn good because you get him yeah absolutely and again i i think i'm higher on him in terms of where he would rate as a prospect if you think about it 
like I said, he's one of the most creative passers I've ever seen at the college level. And the only other guy who's combined that sort of passing with this type of athleticism is John Wall. And John Wall is, was a wonderful passer coming out of Kentucky. Ike Morant's significantly better with the jump shot. He doesn't quite have Wall's size and power and certainly not his defensive ability. But I think he's going to be a big problem for people for a long time. And at the very least, one of like the most highlight worthy players to come into the league for a long time. And I'm really looking forward to what he's going to do i will say i after watching him more i would like if they had a rim running big in memphis who's a little more explosive than jaron jaron's not really like your pogo stick alley-oop type of guy you know he's more of a quick jumper and i thought oh well if jaron at center pick and pop then morant can kind of get downhill but i think he's a good enough passer and a good enough finisher that he doesn't need that extra space you know if it's someone like russell westbrook then pick and pop is great right because now you've got all this room westbrook isn't that creative as a passer particularly when he's younger so he can get down to the and he's really quick but he's not you know the greatest touch finisher in the world if he had someone who could and he threw some very creative alley oops this year so if he had someone who could go up and get some oops i think that would be something that memphis should try to look for and you can find that sort of a player for not that expensive uh, on the market hopefully in the next couple of years they can get someone like that and maybe they would end up playing jaron as the fourth i'm not saying that jaron as a pick and pop guy would be like a big problem for him to have as center but maybe what you could do is because Morant is such a good passer you could deal with a little bit less spacing have a rim rolling five let Jaron be your four man and then you just got a ton of size defensively and can win some games that way uh that's uh we could talk more about that when we get into the Memphis uh off season anything else you wanted to say on job oh there was one play I wanted to mention this because I think this it, it was I was going to mention it at the outset but then it got into the glidey thing instead I it was one of my favorite plays for him he kind of stumbled and lost his dribble on a step through but kind of kept his composure and just somehow found the lob for a dunk for a teammate it was a beautiful example of creating something out of nothing and not throwing up some crap and i love that play because most most 19 year olds at any level wouldn't wouldn't think of okay i'm kind of stuck but where is there a possibility of something open and i thought it was it was a great representation of how he was able to create openings for other guys even sometimes in adverse circumstances and that's a huge positive yeah and i did like his footwork in the lane when he'd pick up his dribble he had some nice up and under step throughs uh, those types uh, of plays so we've a bit of news to get here now let's start with some of those teams that had their seasons altered by that weird western conference playoff bracket both for good at and for ill and one thing that's apparent to me is that the optics of simply losing in the second round if you're houston getting to the second round or the west finals in the case of denver and portland it seems like both of those franchises or or all of those franchises are experienced perhaps an altered destiny not based on necessarily how good their team was but just who the matchups happened to be and when they occurred let's start with some of this coaching drama in houston yeah so in houston We've already talked about Jeff Bezdelic previously in the past. So he came back out of retirement for during the 18-19 season. Remember, Houston's defense was just terrible in the beginning stretch of the season. And while that is not all Bezdelic's doing, that they bounced back, it seems like he helped. He will not be back in Houston. And I thought the the phrasing out of that was a Jonathan 
Fagan piece was notable because it, when you say a, a coach will not be back, that means it came from the team side. You know, this, it wasn't Bizdelic announcing his retirement or anything like that. And then similar phrasing coming in this case from from Warren Legary that Roy Rogers, another assistant, will not be back with the Houston Rockets for the 1920 season. Yeah, recall Tim McMahon said uh, on a podcast that part of the reason Bizdelic retired was he didn't get offered enough money and that then when they started poorly the Rockets decided oh yeah this guy is pretty valuable maybe we should pay him and then Warren Legary is Roy Rogers agent also Mike D'Antoni's agent and D'Antoni had his option for next year exercised by Tillman Fertitta early in the year D'Antoni has been vocal about wanting an extension Warren Legary does not like to have his coaches go into lame duck years you'll recall that's part of why Dave Yeager ended up getting fired in Memphis and moving to Sacramento because they did not want to give him an extension and whether it's a fiction or not that coaches just can't coach when they're going into the last year of their contract and they'll never be able to have the ear of the team part of the reason why Rogers supposedly didn't want to return not that he was offered a a contract by Houston was that D'Antoni only has one year left and assistant coaches would rather have more than a one-year deal themselves and he probably will have the ability to get that elsewhere the thinking would be there also reporting by a local news reporter in houston which and forgive me i I should have written his name down and i can't remember who it was that these decisions to not bring the back the assistants were actually daryl morey's doing and that it had been fertitta who had exercised this fourth year option for d'antoni and that this is kind of an attempt to just get d'antoni out of there and get a new coach in which doesn't make a ton of sense to me if that's really what they're trying to do because you know who is this new coach that's going to come in and coach chris paul and james harden and pj tucker and all these headstrong vets sure you can argue they need some more ball movement on offense and you know i think their defense is about as good as it's going to get given the personnel so who knows whether this is for Tita, whether it's maury part of it surely is ligari and his machinations wanting an extension for d'antoni but seems like a lot of discord once again in houston and continuing just the overall thread of instability in this organization and for Tita's press conference after they lost to the Warriors and how he really wanted to make it to the West Finals and you know he kept really pushing it as far as like that's where he they wanted to go he mentioned Western Conference Finals several times in that impromptu presser none of this stuff sounds good to me I mean I I think that's that seems pretty unequivocally clear and maybe it's a situation that'll be salvaged but just a lot of odd happenings like this whether it's personnel whether it's cost savings aside from the food in the media room or now this coaching stuff whether it's salaries whether it's not wanting to bring back d'antonio whether it's discord between fertitta and maury yeah, whatever yeah. it is it, i don't think it's a good sign it, it's also a little bit weird because some of these coaches have really long relationships like irv roland was also let go and he's had a relationship with harden going back to 2008 i believe it's from the, the lebron skills academy back then hasn't been a coach with harden and the rockets for for nearly that long but has been involved with it also as connections with Chris Paul and PJ Tucker and they've moved on from some of the other members of their coaching staff and it's always hard when you are partway through a process to to necessarily know what attribution it should get you know if they spend more on the replacements or something like that then it could be a different story but these early tea leaves are not a positive thing for them and then you can contrast that with one of the biggest beneficiaries of the bracket change the Portland Trailblazers and so in Portland Terry Stotts got a contract 
contract extension that that was announced by Neil O'Shea the basically in their kind of post-mortem interviews the day after they lost to the Warriors and then shortly thereafter O'Shea himself got an extension through 2024 you think he deserved it I mean O'Shea was integrally involved in drafting uh, CJ did he draft Dame I'm trying to remember when he when he got there from the Clippers I can't recall whether he drafted Dame but I'm I'm pretty confident I'll look that up while you're yeah so so O'Shea he has done a really good job of managing the bench I was skeptical I will admit it I was skeptical last year when they let all those when they let a bunch of good players go and it ended up being that they replaced them well and you know so even though Napier Connaughton and Ed Davis none of those guys got a lot of money in their new locations and Connaughton in particular I think could have really helped the Blazers did that but the the reason that I would be really skeptical is that when given the latitude to spend money you know to to really build out this team and yes Paul Allen teams are are structurally different because he was so willing to pay the tax they used Olshay used that money on Evan Turner who I never bought the theory of that and yeah they went after Chandler Parsons and Hassan Whiteside both those didn't work but I never bought the Evan Turner theory they paid him so much money and when you overpay for a player sure you can say it's monopoly money it's Paul Allen but that structurally limits you for trade purposes for everything else and then giving so much money to Myers Leonard when he was never going to be the answer at starting center except for a few games in the Western Conference Finals and we'll see what happens moving forward but Nurk is a materially better player than Myers Leonard and so those decisions didn't hurt the Blazers as much as they would have with other teams but again that's an example of what he did like one of the key things that Olshay did when given latitude and it both of those were absolute disasters for the franchise yeah and there have always been rumblings perhaps some of those leaked by Olshay himself who is uh very media savvy or media conscious depending on your viewpoint that it was Paul Allen who didn't want to lose anybody from that 2016 team that had lost to the Warriors where again they overperformed and then they spent all this money to keep these guys together we'll see whether that in fact it will be the case going forward they don't obviously have as much flexibility as they did the, that off oh, oh, so I looked up the Olshay thing if yeah uh, yeah, he, he, yeah he did draft him he I, did I, draft him he was that, not yeah. there to acquire the pick that became Damian Lillard in the Gerald Walls trade which is underrated of the stupidest trades of this decade um but he it, from Brooklyn's perspective not from but Portland's of course and then yeah he drafted that was an um, I mean a really successful one Dame sixth Myers Leonard 11th Will Barton 40th in that draft Barton ended up having success against the team they vanquished in the second round more success than in Portland but still a really nice pick for that spot but anyway back to Olshay there are reports shortly before the extension was announced that Washington could be interested in him after Tin Connolly turned them down perhaps that was part of the impetus but yeah all the way through 2024 that is quite the long extension Stott's extension goes through 2022 and yeah I mean I, I don't think that overall Olshay has done a bad job I think really that 2016 offseason is the major blemish on his resume but the Nurkic trade was an absolute steal that's a great great one to bring up thank you hiring Stott's in the first place yeah yeah that was good um drafting McCollum drafting Lillard the trade for Mason Plumlee was a good one at at the time it seemed like and their ability to to fill out the bench every year has been pretty good the Rodney Hood trade worked out for them the Ennis Cantor signing less so the Ennis Cantor offer sheet had that not been matched but it wasn't and he had a pretty darn good idea that it wasn't going to other interesting news Chris Haynes got Uncle Dennis, Kawhi's uncle and business manager, to go on the record about what it was that went awry in San Antonio. Really, for the first time, Kawhi has never particularly talked about it. But here's the quote from Dennis Robertson. I think it just became a lack of trust. They do 
didn't believe Kawhi couldn't play and that caused a lack of trust in us and then us not believing in them anytime a player says he's not capable of playing you should believe him why would Kawhi just stop playing all of a sudden he's a competitor sometimes you get these team doctors telling you what you can and cannot do and Kawhi was just in too much pain to get out there this was a serious issue they didn't believe him and after that the relationship couldn't recover and we decided we had to move on and I completely understand that especially when it got to the point where people in the Spurs organization are leaking stuff Tony Parker's comments which he claims he didn't mean that way but certainly did not look good in print and many have said oh Kawhi just shut it down he wanted to go to some other market he just wanted to get out of there he just didn't like San Antonio blah 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 and yeah people have always speculated that oh yeah he could have played last year he was fine I've just never seen actual evidence to indicate that sure people whisper it but everything that we've ever heard including this support the idea that there really was a a breakdown in terms of a a lack of trust Robertson also acknowledged that there was some kind of an issue that Kawhi has been dealing with we saw him come up a a little lame early in game three later than in game four as well after a big dunk but he declined to specify precisely what that issue is so uh, also by the way quickly I meant to mention this yesterday but remember when people were like oh yeah Kawhi is like not a leader well either it doesn't matter that he's not a leader because he certainly led this team to the NBA finals on the court with one of the best postseasons that we've seen in some time or he was perfectly capable of being a leader and it was just the other guys who had more experience in San Antonio and like Norm Paul had some nice quotes about how Kawhi was helping to keep them steady in some of the rough times in the series so uh, once again the media fascination with leadership uh, appears to be a little overblown the one other piece of news that we should get to is uh, a little bit from Denver another one of the bracket beneficiaries though not as clearly as Portland because they lost in the second round Tim Connolly who decided to stay in Denver after being wooed I, I don't know what the right word is but, you know, c- considering seriously considering going to the Wizards in his native Washington DC he also expects that Paul Millsap will be back remember that the Nuggets have serious control in that matter because they can just opt him into that 30 million dollar deal or they can agree to a different structure of course yeah and obviously Denver does have it entirely within their control to keep him once they turn down that team option it's not entirely within their control but you would imagine they would do so with the the agreement that you mentioned by the way Connolly returning to Denver perhaps uh, another consequence of Denver having a little bit easier of a bracket even though I think they underperformed in, in that bracket anyway so we've got a new sponsor to tell you about Rhone like the Rhone River in France very underrated river in my opinion Rhone is a men's performance lifestyle and premium activewear brand I got some of their stuff it's really just outstanding quality great to work out in the moisture wicking is outstanding the quality of the fabric it's just softer it feels like premium materials in a way that other workout gear does not so whether you're training in the gym or if you're jumping on international flights with their new commuter collection which is gear that will work for the office but has some of the same properties of athletic gear in terms of the materials that are lightweight comfortable wrinkle free you've got pants polos shorts shirts it's all weather stuff as well roan makes something for the modern man regardless of the occasion 
I've got this gym that I built out in my shed in the backyard and especially during the winter here in the Bay Area it could be a little cold but the rain long sleeve in Aruba Blue Heather is a great piece of workout gear the long sleeves that keep me warm as I'm starting my workout help me get warmed up but then once I start sweating it's not too hard wicks the moisture away and keeps me cool as well once uh, the workout really ramps up the way to get started with them is at roan.com r-h-o-n-e.com slash cap space and then use that promo code cap space to get 20 percent off your first purchase once again that's roan.com r-h-o-n-e.com slash cap space and use that promo code cap space to get that 20 percent off let's turn now to the charlotte hornets their off season now further complicated with the news that kemba walker is eligible for a designated player veteran contract having made third team all nba this season should they decide to give it to him in full the numbers on that five years 221.3 million dollars starting at 38.2 million and finishing at 50.4 million in the 2023-24 season as we talked about there is some flexibility to start him lower than 35 percent of the cap or to have non-guarantees on the end or to do less of the max raises or maybe even some declines if he really does want to stay there perhaps that they could offer him something that would still be far more than he can get elsewhere but it wouldn't be quite so punitive for the team on the back end but i think we need to talk first of just what it would mean for charlotte if they do bring him back and that starts with their current salary commitment yeah this is not going to be the the rosiest offseason preview we've done so if you just take so you leave off the cap holds for all of their definitely pending free agents including kemba walker so walker jeremy lamb frank kaminsky who's restricted if they give him a qualifying offer and shelvin mack but steve i'll I'll include tony parker for now we can we can talk about that just with those guys being free the hornets would be 25.4 million below the luxury tax and 25.4 million is a significant amount of money however it is also less than kemba walker would make if he returns even if he returns on a 30 percent max deal it is less than that so if bringing back kemba walker and the luxury tax are both in play, they're going to have to lose something beyond their own pending free agents. Now, Parker is an, is an easy way to, to do that. Theoretically, as a $5.3 million non-guarantee. They could stretch Bismarck Biombo. They could try to find a taker for Marvin Williams, who would, again, all these moves would make the team, other than stretching Biombo, would make the team materially worse for next season. And that's where the rubber really meets the road with, with Charlotte. Is the, the, And I wrote a piece about this for The Athletic back, you know, like months ago, before Kevin qualified is that it served as a reminder of just how messed up this team's books are yeah and and you really have to go back to the trade deadline in 2018 when walker was presumed to be on the block probably they could have gotten something say a first round pick and a prospect maybe gotten off of some of the bad money that they had on the books perhaps they were just looking for way too much in those talks but eventually michael jordan said no we're not actually trading him and walker said that he wanted to stay there and they did not make the playoffs that year they did not make the playoffs the next year had they they would have gotten completely steamrolled in the first round in both of those two years they did get Kemba Walker being voted in as an all-star starter in Charlotte that meant something to the franchise in theory but as a Hornets fan and as Hornets ownership was because what we said at the time was okay you know they have all these long-term commitments these bad contracts we knew it at the time was all right would you rather like you're going to have to rebuild regardless was the promise right and and that's all the more clear now would you rather deny that reality maybe get into the 
the eighth seed one of these next couple of years win 35 games and then after that have to rebuild uh, when walker leaves and you get nothing for him and that rebuild is now more painful because you didn't get something for walker and you didn't get high draft picks the last couple of years or would you rather have started it back then and now they once more face a a similar decision you're not going to actually get anything for walker but first off you're going to sign into a contract that's going to be really bad going forward probably becomes untradeable he also is going to be eligible for a no trade clause by the way which you imagine will be a matter of some negotiation that could complicate things immensely presumably if he's staying it's because he loves being in charlotte and he would probably really want one and of course he's got all these max offers elsewhere you would expect but to afford him as you mentioned they would probably have to add the minimum stretch biombo that's going to hurt your competitiveness in future years or they would have to give up assets to get off of some of this money which uh, will hurt their competitiveness in future years and so you're going to punt on your future even more and bring back if you bring back walker you probably can't afford to bring back lamb you're going to be on minimum contracts to fill out the roster probably can't even use any of an exception so you're bringing back walker you're going to be worse next year he probably won't be as good next year at 29 as a short point guard and won't be any better going forward they're not a, a cap space destination type of team they'll have space maybe next year but not much uh they'll be you know maybe about 10 million or so if they bring back walker for summer 2020 I mean, you're really, we've talked about locking yourself into 35 wins before, and maybe, you know, they could, they have an upper bound of 42 and they could possibly get into playoffs if everything breaks right or they get lucky in terms of point differential or whatever. But it's very clear to me. I mean, and they would still, I guess the other thing too is, Dan, we could talk about this. All right, they bring Walker back. They got major needs still and no money to fill it out other than the, the 12th pick. And it's also important to note that Charlotte does not have this bank of additional assets so they do have some second round picks in various years from other teams but they also owe their own second round picks from now until 2023 with only the exception of 2022 so four of their next five are owed to other teams and some of some of the ones that they're getting from from other teams are, are going to be useful but it, a lot of it's going to depend like for example and those are all second uh, don't worry M- mj will just buy some second round picks. oh yeah that that's definite so they don't even really have those means and their young players I like Miles Bridges, but like think about Malik Monk. I think he's a good example here. You can't really convert Malik Monk into a ton of real assets. He's more of a sweetener than a than a centerpiece. And that's a real problem for Charlotte as well, that those those guys haven't really turned out. You know, Cody Zeller, valuable to their team. They really did note his absence again this past season, but making fifteen million yeah. a year. Not not a reliable starter at the center position at this right. point. Right. And but. and center abundant supply. He's below that threshold, whatever that is, of whether it's the fifteenth best or 20th best or whatever it is that those players are worth paying and he has two more years under contract so that becomes less less valuable so they don't really have much of a way to pivot even if they wanted to to build around Kemba and I think that's a big part of this problem as well yeah I mean just to go through their depth chart right all right say they bring back Kemba well can they afford Tony Parker and his non-guaranteed 5.3 million at backup point guard and then you've also got Devontae Graham at, at that position I mean maybe they can figure out a way to afford that if they stretch Biombo, so all right parker wasn't that reliable at backup one card though and when he was out they really struggled last year 
Graham, I think, has some potential, but not someone you want to rely on at backup point guard either. At the two, they'll be losing Jeremy Lamb in all likelihood. Certainly, you can't keep both Lamb and Parker uh, under, unless they do major surgery in addition to stretching Biombo in terms of dumping salary or stretching salary. I guess you'd say Bridges can start at the three. You got a starting fourth, Marvin Williams. The five, okay, Cody Zeller for the 50 games a year that he plays it could be a decent option, but can't play that many minutes, and he's got all these knee issues. Willie Hernan Gomez, James Borrego really just didn't trust him defensively last year. Biombo, not that good of an option. He's unlikely to be on the team next year if, if they bring back Walker. Kaminsky's going to be gone. They don't have anything at backup power forward. I guess that's Kid Gilchrist, but he has these spacing issues. They don't have anything at the backup three. Malik Monk, Dwayne Bacon, I guess if you want to rely on those guys, one of those guys that's to be your starting two. You don't have any, any starting two on the roster, and they have no way to fill all these holes and they weren't any good last year even when those holes were kind of filled so i mean that's the the issue of kemba walker going from making 12 million to 38 million or even 33 million or, or whatever if they get him for a little less than that so it's a disaster whenever we look at the future and future power rankings or whatever the hornets are, are always at the bottom and they just they have to have to have to just cut bait and accept their fate they've been basically since the middle of the 17 18 season have just been sticking their head in the sands and the ostrich approach isn't going to work anymore but it seems like that's what they're going to try to do and perhaps walker will save them by just deciding that it's hopeless here and he doesn't want to just take the money and he's going to go somewhere else and he'll he'll get life-changing money either way he will and the math on those scenarios it, it isn't good for the hornets in the short term but it does clear up relatively quickly so barring a big overarching change it, it's like michael k gilchrist declining his player option worth 13 million which i fully expect to, to him to pick it up i believe he has not yet but that that's almost definitely coming there it looks like charlotte will be in that area where they could theoretically clear, clear cap space but they're better off just not and using using the full mid-level exception using the biannual if they haven't used it and i believe they i believe they use the mle on tony parker so they should be fine so they could go that direction another unfortunate thing for charlotte is unless they want to take on long-term salary they would have that wiggle room between the cap and the tax but they can't really use it it may be some imbalanced trades or something like that or interestingly if they wanted to take on money for a future season memphis will be in this boat as well i'll talk about this in their section because if kemba walker leaves the money on their books beyond the 1920 season is pretty manageable. So they have Batum making 27-1, and then he will expire after that following season. So he'll expire in 21. Zeller expires in 21, will make 15.4. They have guys on rookie scale contracts. They're all, you know, 5 million or so or less. And then Dwayne Bacon will be a restricted free agent. So basically their books, they're not totally clear, but they're pretty close to clear by 20, by 2020-21. And then the next year, they're almost completely clear. That is theoretically Malik Monk will get a raise to what amount we don't know yet. So if they want to pivot, they don't really have the assets to make it a quick bounce back, but at least they aren't going to be saddled by as much. Whether that provides solace or not is an open question. Yeah. And maybe what you could see, perhaps more likely this would occur at the 2020 trade deadline than this offseason is you know, Marvin Williams can still play. He, he's probably the biggest one there with his $15 million player option. Kid Gilchrist, uh, probably get opt in to uh, that 13 million that he's to that actually didn't look like that bad of a deal when it was signed but kid gilchrist just hasn't developed and has had a lot of injury issues since then uh you know but his shooting is so bad he probably can't really help a, a contender very much but maybe you could see either of those guys 
Biombo if they don't stretch him being traded to a team that has longer term bad salary on the books now I'm not sure what they could hope to get back because two of the teams that come to mind for me are Miami and Dallas Dallas with Tim Hardaway Jr Miami James Johnson Deion Waiters so you could say hey we'll trade for these guys who are longer term contracts and pick up an asset for doing that but Miami and Dallas are pretty asset poor going forward both of them being out first round picks in the future but maybe there's a, another team that has a bad contract that goes forward through 2021 that they could flip those guys for there weren't as many bad contracts signed of course in 2017 as there were 2016 and almost no bad contracts signed in 2018 so that's a little bit more difficult of a strategy to pursue maybe they could even consider if someone like signs a, a really bad contract this offseason by the trade deadline they could flip one of those guys for that but it really seems like you know they're going to be in a similar situation to really where cleveland was this year except they don't have kevin love and says say they probably don't even have anyone on the roster who looks like or, or at least they don't have a number eight pick I, I probably would take bridges going forward over colin sexton but at least sexton is someone who has the ability to create a shot which they don't really have anyone in the pipeline here if you're not a monk fan which i don't think anyone is still at this point so i probably even if walker leaves they're looking at only 7.5 million in space it doesn't seem like michael jordan's mo to just take on salary and tank anyway so if walker leaves i could see them just like trying to sign some stopgap point guard and delude themselves into thinking they'll be competitive and winning and, and that's at not the end of the world now with the the way the new draft lottery works but you know you could see them getting to 32 wins eh, probably not they, they'll probably be in the 20s if they lose walker no matter who if they, they lose walker i think they're gonna yeah. be abysmal yeah well I, I mean maybe they stretch bismack and then they could get to about 20 million in space and they could try to pick up one of the starting point guards that that market though ricky rubio patrick beverly maybe goran dragic but you see him probably opting in or you know a Corey joseph or george hill type of guy darren collison i mean those guys aren't gonna move the needle for them as far as sniffing playoff contention if they lose walker uh, so one other thing we should discuss for sure with them is let's use the kemba departs hypothetical for this it is a challenging offseason for teams that have the full mid-level to use but aren't as focused on the future because restricted free agents you know generally you have to overpay like a good example here is kyle anderson like that's the type of contract that you're probably going to need to offer in order to get a guy away from team because if it's close to reasonable value most general managers are just gonna match so yeah you, you know who could be someone they'd pursue uh if walker leaves would be uh delon wright yeah i, I could, could see, see that. them going in that direction or, or sataransky mm-hmm. tyus jones someone with a little bit of upside even if someone like emmanuel moutier like those uh, and moutier is going to be unrestricted probably anyway so you know maybe that's the type of guy you could see him going after but again not someone who's gonna really change things for you right and they could definitely be in the mix if there is a player who thinks that he's a starter and just the starting jobs dry up and wants to get back on the market yeah that sort of opportunity but it's, it's not really clear who that's going to be you know like i don't think ricky rubio is going to be looking for a job that desperately maybe darren collison maybe depending on how his circumstance works out and then the other element that they could try to bring in is just going for kind of best use of money available like maybe going after Ubre, depending on what his price point is or rodney magruder who you and i both like seems like more than the average general manager i still really like maxi kleba and even though he's he'll be 27 and is just a little bit outside of their time frame those sorts of swings you know something like that might be worth it for them i would be trying to look more for somebody in their early 20s but functionally speaking there aren't many of those available well that was depressing wait can i make uh, one small soapbox thing here oh yeah well so I, I, mean, I, I i had mine so, so I, feel I, free feel free to uh, this fill is, up the airwaves it is only partially related to charlotte and and i understand from the players association standpoint why this isn't the case because it's not paying new money 
I would be interested in if the league added a little bit of, well, not the league, if the players and owners added some flexibility in future iterations of the CBA to allow teams to use the mid-level exception to acquire somebody on a contract that qualify, that basically qualifies under those rules. So it could function as a trade exception and a signing exception. And the reason why that could be useful for Charlotte is they just don't have the means to acquire players through like, you know, that, that kind of middle road contract. And maybe that's a way to get an asset return. The Why, why the players don't want that is because you want teams to spend new money. But if the if the balance is, you know, there isn't maybe somebody that they want to spend that money on because, you know, Manuel Moutier is not worth it or something like that. I think that added flexibility would overall be beneficial for both sides, though I understand why it hasn't existed at this point. All right, anything else to talk about before we go here? My off-season preview for the Milwaukee Bucks, something that you and I will talk about in the near future. That will be up very soon at The Athletic. You can check that out. And if you haven't read my piece breaking down Clay Thompson situation, which, you know, sort of similar to Kemba Walker, except that it went the other way because he didn't make an All-NBA team. That is up at The Athletic as well. And I mean, I'll mention it now, but we'll keep keep going through it. We'll be back with the NBA cast for game one of the NBA finals on Thursday. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, we will talk to y'all then.